The first reading is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The second reading is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Gracious Father, we come before you now. Many of us are weary and worn and sad. Many of us long for rest and we feel that we can't find it. Help us to hear the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Amen. What does resting look like to you? Perhaps you're the sort of person who rests by... Thank you, Richard. Now you've seen how we're wearing the same clothes as well. (laughs) Not deliberate, despite what Debbie said. Perhaps you're the sort of person who rests by sinking into a comfy chair at the end of the day with a cup of tea and a good book. Or are you the sort of person who only really rests when they put on their walking boots and goes for a trek in the wind and the rain with a friend or family member? Why don't we just turn to our neighbours for 30 seconds and just ask them how they rest? Go ahead. Right, let's come back together. That should have been enough time. Out of curiosity, who said comfy chair and a good book? Let's see hands. Who said a comfy chair and a good book? Not as many as I thought. It's not as many. What about taking a brisk walk on a windswept hill or windswept Platfields Park? Anyone? Is it not many? What are you guys doing with your time? Uh, yeah, well, your TV, yeah, TV. We might have different ways of doing it, and clearly we do. But the truth is, we do all need to rest. If you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe Forbes magazine, which is prestigious, which says, and I quote, adequate rest helps your body activate its inner healing cascade and return to a state of homeostasis. This is when your body can repair and recover. Wow. That sounds like the sort of thing you'd pay a lot of money for, doesn't it? You'd go to a fancy soap shop for. And it's free just by resting. But if you aren't convinced by Forbes magazine, the NHS website stresses the importance of rest and sleep. Lack of sleep, it says, won't just make you grumpy and generally unpleasant. That's what it says. It says it increases your risk of diabetes and generally reduces your life expectancy. We need to rest. Even your doctor says so. But I can tell you about someone who didn't need to rest. God. You see, making the whole universe didn't tire God out. And it didn't tire him out because God isn't finite. He isn't limited like we are. He is infinite, As Solomon said when he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem in 1 Kings chapter 8, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. So on the seventh day, 
God isn't just doing what I often do and falling on the back of a sofa with an oof and putting his feet up. It's been hard work this week building the universe. No, in fact, he is still working. He's still upholding creation as he has been ever since. He's still unfolding his perfect plan for the universe as he has been ever since. So when our passage says he rests, it means he stopped creating the universe. He finished the work he had been doing, as our passage says. The skilled, craftsman-like work of creating the universe is finished. So what's the relevance for us then in this? Well, what's interesting in our passage in Genesis is that as soon as it says he rested from all his work, it immediately has God doing something. Have you noticed that? Look at our passage. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, which means he set it apart from the other days. You see, God is setting apart a day, a period of time, as different from the others. He is giving that special day, meaning he's sanctifying that seventh day. And this is another occasion where it's really helpful, I think, to have the context of the ancient Near East in mind, as as Paul kind of showed us last week. Because you see, in those other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the gods of those cultures, well, they would create the world and they would fill it with people, and then they would retire to their temples and let humans do all the work for them. The humans would be their servants and their slaves. It was a bit like, well, I was struggling to think of an example, but you know ground force? It was a bit like ground force. Anyone know this? Alan Titchmarsh and Charlie Dimmock and Tommy Walsh, well, they would come into your garden and they would spend two days revamping it, making it like new. It's basically a new garden you've got at the end of that. And then, and then you'd come home and you'd be all amazed and surprised by this wonderful garden. You've got, wow, look at all the work that these guys have done. But then, of course, they'd leave. And after that, it would be your job to keep the garden as it was before. It's your job then to keep out the weeds and to mow the grass and trim the hedges and plant the the flowers every year. And talk about a gift becoming a curse. Maybe it's just me and I don't like gardening. Uh, Maybe you're like, wow, I love all those things. But in those cultures, the gods have made you to basically be their dog's bodies. But that's not what it's like in Genesis. You see, when God rests on the seventh day, he doesn't just retire off to a temple and put his feet up and drink a cup of tea. He rests with his people. And they rest with him. You see, that holy seventh day opens up and it leads into the Garden of Eden, which we'll see more of in the next few weeks. But what what is the Garden? Well, it's a perfect place of rest in a perfect time of rest. A perfect, perfect place of rest in a perfect time of rest. And it's the perfect relationship of God with his people, with the people of God. So the Garden of Eden is like a temple, A place where God is present with his people, because that is ultimately what a temple is. But unlike with those other ancient Near Eastern cultures, God isn't doing nothing and treating people like slaves, no. Instead, he has a deep and close relationship with his people. 
In the garden, Adam and Eve are tasked with stewarding the world that God has made, and God himself upholds and sustains that world, that universe, and he blesses Adam and Eve, and he walks with them. And the picture presented is a biblical picture of what real rest is. You see, in Eden, both God and his people have rest together. So, what is rest? Well, I hope you're beginning to see now that that rest isn't just not doing anything. In fact, it isn't one specific thing at all. Biblical rest is nothing less than life-giving communion with the life-giver. Life-giving communion with the life-giver. You see, Adam and Eve were at perfect rest in the Garden of Eden because they were in perfect fellowship, communion with God. And then through him, with each other, and with the whole of creation. They had a job to do, but they were at rest, just like God. And yeah, we'll see more of Eden in the next few weeks, but, but for now, we need to see that that rest came to an end. In the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the breaking of the relationship between God and humanity and the end of that state of rest. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, the place of rest, and ultimately are cut out of that state of rest and that relationship that the Sabbath represents. And we see the loss of this rest in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you, Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. In the garden, when things were perfect, work was rest. But now, work is no longer rest. Now, work is painful toil. But of course, that isn't the end. It would be a short book, the Bible, if it finished there. God graciously chooses to restore the relationship with his people, with Israel, his promised people, to restore to them the promise of rest. Within the promise is the promise of a new Eden. You might not think you hear those words there, but look, just look with me. The tabernacle and then the temple, well, they will be again a new special space where God will be with his people. Have you ever wondered why the Old Testament sends so much time describing what the tabernacle and the temple look like? Like the second half of Exodus is just going on and on about what the tabernacle looks like. Well, you see, there's a reason. Because the intricately explained decoration and the design of the tabernacle and then the temple, well, they're they're there to deliberately evoke the Garden of Eden. For example, the Ark of the Covenant has cherubim on it, just as cherubim guard the entrance to Eden. The holy lampstand, the special lampstand, well, that is a great tree with branches and flowers on it. And the temple building itself, we see, well, that has hundreds of pomegranates and lilies and animals and palm trees. It's a new garden of Eden. And in Psalm 132, God says, this is my resting place forever and ever. But you see, as well as a special holy place with his people, there is a special holy time. And that special time of rest will be the Sabbath. You see, if the temple is the physical place where God is supposed to dwell, particularly with his people, well, the Sabbath is a special time 
where God is supposed to dwell particularly with his people. And of course, in the same way that the temple is a special place, it doesn't mean that God isn't with his people everywhere else where they are. And in the same way with the special time, it doesn't mean that God isn't with the people of God every other day of the week. But these are special places and special times where God is uniquely in relationship with his people. This is why the Sabbath is so stressed in the Old Testament as being a key part of the relationship, the bond between God and his people. In the same way that the temple was that special point of contact, so was the Sabbath. The special God-ordained time for the people of Israel to draw near to God. And the goal of it all, the goal of the temple and the goal of the Sabbath is rest. It's rest. And you remember what rest is? Life-giving communion with the life-giver. As King Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 8, when he opens the temple in the first place, he says, praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people, just as he promised. Yet, of course, the rest, as we know, doesn't last. It all goes wrong again. The Israelites, God's people, well, they don't hold to the Sabbath. They don't trust in or rest in God, despite these things, despite his warnings. Instead, they look for rest in things of the world. And so they lose that rest. See, the Israelites, they looked for their rest in other places, in other gods, in money, in the security of alliances with neighboring countries. Again and again we see in the Old Testament the prophets calling on the Israelites to return to worshipping God, to return to finding their rest in God, to return to Sabbath rest. But again and again the people turn away and they seek their rest in other things. But ultimately the Old Testament tells us, the prophets tell us, there is no rest outside of the one who made us. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. But the Old Testament leaves us asking, how can we, after the fall, how can we find our rest in God when we're so tempted to find our rest in other things instead? And ultimately, we find our answer in the New Testament. We find it in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 to 28, when Jesus declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. Here is the one able to do two particular things. One, he is able to show people what Sabbath rest really is. And two, he is the one able to give it to us. And over the course of the Gospels, we see that great clash between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, well, well, they had seen what the prophets had said. They had seen how their ancestors hadn't followed Sabbath rest. And so they'd been alienated for God, and they'd seen this. They'd lived, you know, their ancestors had lived through the exile. They'd seen that to ignore Sabbath rest is ultimately to lose relationship with God. And they came up with an answer. Their their answer was to write lots of very strict rules about how to obey the Sabbath. You see, they said, oh, our ancestors, they lost the Sabbath. We're going to make sure we never lose the Sabbath, and that way God will be happy with us. They turned to legalism to deal with the problem. 
You see, the problem is, if their ancestors had ignored the Sabbath and tried to find their rest in somewhere else, the Pharisees did the opposite. They made a whole load of rules about how exactly to keep the Sabbath. And so if people would strictly tick boxes by doing exactly what needed to be done, well, then God would be pleased with them and would would reward them. Anyone who broke those very strict, minute rules, well, they would have to face punishment. And this, this is where Jesus comes in in our Gospels. This is where Jesus comes into conflict with these religious leaders. And it's over the Sabbath more than any single other issue. Jesus heals again and again on the Sabbath day, which breaks the Pharisees' rules. Jesus' disciples, well, they eat, pick some grain from a field on the Sabbath day. It breaks the Pharisees' rules. Again and again in the Gospels, in all four Gospels, Jesus clashes with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. And you see, again and again, Jesus is trying to get these religious leaders to see that, that, well, what they're doing is they're treating the Sabbath like a chore, something to be ticked off. He's trying to get them to see that there's no rest to be found when you treat what is supposed to be rest as a chore. Because even though the the Pharisees have kind of got it half right, they've seen that that what their ancestor did was find rest in other things, and they've said, we can't find rest in those other things. But what Jesus is trying to get them to see is that they found the wrong answer. Because by creating this legalistic system, what they're doing is they're trying to find rest in themselves. They've said, as long as I do this, as long as I keep all these rules, well, great, I will keep the Sabbath, and then I'll have the rest. But Jesus says that is a place of burden. If you try and find rest in yourself, you will be burdened. You will not find rest. For instead of making the mistake of the Pharisees, Jesus points to, Jesus provides, Jesus is real Sabbath rest. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, our second reading today, Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Ultimately, we can find our Sabbath rest by resting in Jesus. We won't find it anywhere else in the world. The Israelites of the Old Testament tried that. We won't find it in ourselves. The Pharisees tried that. We won't find it in money or partners or children or grades, or careers, or retirement. And we won't find it by trying to tick all the boxes to prove or justify ourselves to other people. No, we will only find it, we can only find it, in the deep depths of the grace and the love of Jesus. When we can rest in Jesus, and everything that he has done for us, his coming into our fallen world, his living a perfect life despite all the temptations that he faced, his ultimate sacrifice for us on the cross to take away our sins, when we can trust in that Jesus, knowing that we have got nothing that we can prove ourselves, nothing to earn, nothing to do, then Sabbath rest becomes possible again. Because then we can rest because we've got nothing to do. Because Jesus has done it all. You see, the Sabbath isn't a rule to follow. And it isn't something we can decide to completely ignore. 
The Sabbath is rest. It's a gift. A gift to be enjoyed. A gift that we need. A gift that draws us closer to the one who created us and saved us. Rest is a gift to restore us, refresh us, and lift us up out of our sinful fallen world and nearer to our perfect creator. How does it do that? Well, it draws us nearer to God in three key ways. Remember, rely, identify. I'm quite proud of these. Remember, rely, identify. Firstly, it works by getting us to to almost ritually, almost liturgically, remember what God has done for us in creation and redemption. And in that, it's a bit like communion. You see, the weekly rhythm works deeply in us to pull us out of our chaotic and busy lives, and it reminds us of the one who gave us life, who gave us, a de- you know, who gave us breath and everything that we have. The process of daily quiet time, of a day of weekly rest centered around worshiping God, our creator, well, that draws us out of the chaos of life and it draws us towards our creator. It draws out our restless hearts, as Augustine said, and it helps us to find the place where they have that rest. Secondly, it forces us to rely on God and not on ourselves. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to rely on ourselves, to try and justify ourselves on our life, in our school, in our workplaces, amongst our family and friends. But when we're forced to stop, when we're forced every day, once a day, every week, once a week, to stop, not on our terms, not when I've got this bit of work done, not when I've finished that thing that I need to do, but when it's the time to stop, well, then we find ourselves having to trust in him. Have you noticed that little children find it easy to rest? Now, many of you might be thinking at this point, rest? What do you mean rest? They're constantly running around and driving me crazy. Well, hear me out. What I mean by that is that they find it really easy not to worry about things, don't they? To not be burdened by them. You see, we, we toss and we turn and we worry and fret because we think everything depends on us and what we need to do. Little children, well, they can just switch off. They can play happily because they trust that their parents have it all under control. Do you really trust your Heavenly Father like that? Well, the best way to know if you really do is to take rest. Resting in Jesus. Resting in his sacrifice for you. Resting in the Father Resting in the knowledge that he has made the world and that he loves you and he has a plan for your life. Rest. And thirdly, and related to that second one, it makes us find our identity in God. You see, it's so easy, isn't it, for us to find our identity, our self-worth, our sense of importance in our work, in the grades that we get at school or in um, promotions at work or getting a good nod at work from our manager or whatever it is. Or in how we, how we bring up our children at home. Oh, they're well behaved. My identity is a good parent. It's so easy to find our identity in those things. But when we daily, when we weekly come to God in rest, it becomes much harder to lose track of the fact that our ultimate identity isn't in our work, in our school grades, in our children, or in any of those things. 
but it is in him, it's in God, that we are in his image, as we saw last week, that we are his children. Rest helps us to remember, rely, identify. And finally then, what does rest look like? What does this Sabbath rest look like? Well, we've already touched on it, haven't we? A daily quiet time, a weekly day off that's centered around resting in God. Well, what else might rest look like? What else might it include? Well, well, maybe it, it might look like spending quality time relating with others, with family, with church family, not just work colleagues, enjoying the people that God has given you to relate to, but not to compete with or use in sort of a work way or to compare yourself to. It might be hobbying, it might be pausing to delight in something that God has given you joy over, but not something that you're going to find your worth in or your sense in, something that God has given you a gift or a passion for, something that you can enjoy in his good creation, but that isn't necessary for who you are, isn't necessary for your life or sense of fulfillment. Something you can look forward to, but hold lightly. Maybe it means days out. Maybe it does mean putting on those walking boots, going for treks in the hills or around the park to enjoy and explore the creation that God has made for us and placed us in. And you know, maybe it does mean sitting on the sofa with a cup of tea and a book or sitting on the sofa with a a bowl of popcorn and a film, being able to let go of all the things swirling around on your to-do list and to delight in the fact that God has given us creative minds to celebrate and enjoy. You see, what it looks like, it looks like all sorts of different things. This isn't, this isn't a list that, right, that's it, those are your options. This is just examples. The point is that there isn't a fixed list. There isn't a specific set of things that you have to do because, because that's what the Pharisees did. The key thing for you is rest. Is it life-giving time with? Is it life-giving time from the life-giver? Is it a little slice of Eden? Because ultimately, this rest that we enjoy now is a little piece of Eden, a little slice of Eden, a reminder of that Eden rest and a precursor to the greater future rest to come. That greater rest to come is promised in Hebrews 4. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest, and um, anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. You see, that rest will be a new Eden, an eternal rest with God and with the people of God. Like Eden, there will be work, and there will be play, and there will be worship, and it will all be rest, eternal rest. It's the promise we see at the very end of the Bible. We're in Genesis 2, all the way through to Revelation. We see it there. We see Eden restored. We see the tree of life there. We see God dwelling with his people so that there's no need for a temple. We see suddenly that there's no sun or moon, no way to mark the days, because every day is the Sabbath day. And Revelation 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, no more backbreaking toil, the curse is gone, all is rest. And so we rest. We rest now in light of the sure and certain hope of that greater rest. We rest now because of Jesus, in Jesus. Why wouldn't we rest? Our lives are busy 
and stressful. We suffer sleepless nights and anxious days. We feel the weight of the world on our shoulders and the opinions of others terrify us. So why wouldn't we rest? When taking rest seems like the most counterproductive thing we could possibly do. I I don't have time for that. Why wouldn't you rest? Rest. Remember what rest is for. Rest. Remember who gives you rest. Rest. Remember where you've come from and where you're going. Rest. Because rest gives life. Because rest is what you're made for. Let's pray. Father God, we're sorry that we so often try and find rest in ourselves, justification in our identity and all of these things in ourselves. Lord, help us to come to Jesus and find our rest in him. Help us to remember all the good things you have given us and help us to enjoy them and help us to look forward to that day when there will be perfect rest again in you, where we will worship and play and work in a life of perfect rest. And we thank you for this hope and for the rest that we can have now through your Son, our Saviour, in whose name we pray. Amen.